You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so today we are, and I'm kind of sad to announce this, we are wrapping up um, our set of sermons called Jesus and Joy on the book of Philippians. Um, if you've been around for the last several months, uh, for about the last five months, we have been just plodding along verse by verse through this uh, particular letter in the New Testament. And I hope that the Lord has used that, uh, th- this particular study, to, to really bless your soul, to conform you more and more into the image of Jesus. I'm praying that the Lord has done that and will keep doing that uh, this morning as we finish up. So as a, as a preface into the text that we're in this morning, the last part of Philippians chapter four, um, I, let me introduce it by, by mentioning Jerry Bridges. He uh, was an author, he died in 2016, um, just a dear follower of Jesus. Um, one of my favorite authors, if you haven't read any of his stuff, you should grab some of it at some point. Um, you just take your pick and it would probably really bless your soul. Uh, but back in 2007, he wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Now that can be a little bit of a misleading title. Um, he's not saying that sin, any sin is respectable. What he is trying to get at is that in any culture, a culture has a way of seeing some sins really clearly and like easily pointing out that is a sin, we should not do that, that that is wrong. And then other particular sins, it has a hard time seeing. So he's addressing those particular sins that culturally become acceptable in a way sort of respectable in that culture. We have a hard time seeing those sort of things. And I wanna give you the first three respectable sins that he mentions in that book. The first one, um, the number one um, respectable sin in that book, acceptable sort of cultural sin in that book was ungodliness. Another ungodliness is, is living like a practical atheist. So like you come on Sunday morning, you do that thing, but then the rest of your week you live as if there is not a God, right? That's ungodliness. Um, that was his first one. The second one he put in the book was worry. Um, or fear, anxiety, that, that sort of a thing. And if you go back to last week, um, we were in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about what? Anything, anything. So, so being anxious about anything is, is a sin. Now think about the last things you've been anxious about, stressed out about, fearful about, and, and you'll kind of get the idea of what he's going for in the book. I, the, the idea of anxiety and fear and worry is so it's so deeply woven into the fabric of our culture that we just kind of think of it as normal. We don't think of it like God would see that or as the Bible would see that as a sin to be repented of, right? So that was the second one, worry or fear. And the third one that he mentions in that book, Respectable Sins, is is the sin of discontentment. The sin of just a lack of contentment, discontentment. And when you think about discontentment, it's everywhere in our culture. It's so everywhere that that generally speaking, we as a culture are unconcerned about it. We don't even, we're we're unaware of it. It's so prevalent that we don't even see it happening, right? If you just wanna make a broad sweeping statement about the culture that you and I live in, I think this would be a true statement. That discontentment is one of the defining marks of our culture. It's one of the defining marks. If you wanna think about what makes our culture, our culture, discontentment is just, it's always bubbling up and out of the world that we're living in. And the fruit of discontentment is just, I mean, it's just devastating. In a lot of ways, the Bible sees all of our external behavioral sins, like things that we do that break God's heart. It sees all of those sins up here tethered down into the root of discontentment. 
In some ways, discontentment lies under all other sins that we commit. So its fruit comes into things like adultery and divorce and not liking what you see in the mirror and grumbling and complaining. And it, it definitely ties into the, the crazy relationship we have with money and possessions. And our culture does have a crazy relationship with money and possessions. Um, generally speaking, our culture um, has a belief about money and possessions that goes something like this. Having equals happiness. And if you don't have, you can't be happy. That, that sort of belief undergirds so much of what we see in our culture. It's that, that sort of a belief is woven into, the, woven into the fabric of our culture. Think about what advertisements are trying to do. So like commercials that you see, junk mail that you get, um, billboards that you drive by. I mean, wh what are they trying to get you to do? They're trying to get you to see something you don't have and convince you that if you could only have them, then you'd be happy then you'd be whole and complete and your life would finally come together like you've always wanted it to do. I, I don't even know that I need a power tool until I see an ad for a power tool. And, and then I know I need a power tool if, if my life's gonna be whole, right? This is what advertisements are consistently trying to do to you. Um, if you wanna see the, the fruit of discontentment, just think of consumer debt. Consumer debt is, I have to have that to be happy, so I'm gonna spend what I don't have to get that. that that's consumer debt. And it's just suffocating millions of families. You don't have to even think of it in terms of debt. Think of it in terms of how much we accumulate. I mean, just go into our attics, right? That's all you, or the 19 storage sheds that we had to keep all of our stuff in, right? I mean, you just see it just accumulating so much stuff, having equals happiness. It's interesting to note, and this is just a, a, an observation that's probably worth thinking about. The, the average size of houses has doubled in square footage over the last 50 years. You, you can just see that, that, that thing in our culture of having equals happiness. We need the new thing, the bigger thing, the better thing. It's just always churning underneath the surface of, of life for us. And it's so prevalent in our culture that for a lot of us, for really all of us in the room, me included, that that sort of having equals happiness way of seeing the world has just become a, a lens over our eyes through which we see everything else. Which is why when I come to a text like we're in, in, in Philippians chapter four, why it is that I just am praying that the Lord, through just the gentle power of the Holy Spirit, would reacquaint our souls to that last word in verse 11 that word contentment. It's a word we all need to do some thinking on. It's, it's a word we all need to ask Jesus to give us more of. It's a word that we need. We need to be reacquainted with that word contentment. Now think about the, the context of this letter. One way to view the whole book of Philippians, this, this whole letter, is Paul has received a, a monetary gift from the church in Philippi. It's come through Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus has given it to, to Paul. And now Paul, in this letter, is writing a, a response back to the church. He's writing them to thank them for the gift that they've given him. And when you pick it up in verse 10, he's rejoicing because of that gift that he has received from them. But as he's, as he's communicating, I'm rejoicing because of this gift, he also fe feels a need in, in the last section of this letter to qualify his rejoicing. He wants them to be clear. His rejoicing is not in the money that he has received per se. His rejoicing is in what that money from them represents. Namely, it represents that they're sort of like ministry partnership with him. 
their gospel partnership, if they are, they are in together, that money represents to Paul, they are in together for, for gospel expansion. That's what he's rejoicing about. And as he receives that money and as he communicates that he's rejoicing in them because of that gift, he feels the need to, to, to clarify that this is what Christian contentment is. He feels like this is a, a, a door that he can walk through to teach the Philippian church about Christian contentment. So with that, I wanna, I wanna try to work that out with you this morning. I wanna do it through three questions about contentment. Three questions about contentment. Here's the first question. What is contentment? What is contentment? Um, let me just get us a, a working definition just to kind of give us a, a home base for this. What, what is contentment? Christian contentment is having a heart that's fully satisfied in God regardless of the circumstances. It's having a heart fully satisfied in God regardless of the circumstances. So it might be helpful to think of what is the opposite of contentment. So on one side, you have contentment, a heart fully satisfied in God, regardless of the circumstances. On the other side, you have a heart that's coveting, a covetous heart. Contentment on one side, coveting on the other side. Coveting is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. So contentment on this side, a heart that's fully satisfied in God, regardless of the circumstances, coveting on that side, desiring something that's not God, so much, I mean, we just, we're obsessed with it. We've got to have that if we're going to be okay. We're desiring something other than God so much that we lose our contentment in God. Now, let me take that definition of contentment and just break it into a couple of parts so we can make sure that we're seeing it for what it is. So look at that word heart. That, that word heart is showing that contentment is not an external behavioral thing. Contentment's gonna show itself in a lot of behaviors and a lot of actions, but, but at the root, contentment is, a, is an inner thing. It's a heart thing that then shows itself in some fruit. So, so the root is inside of you. It's an inward heart-oriented disposition that shows itself in, in outward action. So it's a heart thing. And secondly, look at that phrase, fully satisfied in God. It's a heart that's fully satisfied in God. It's fully enjoying God. Now, this has been one of the notes that we have been sounding throughout the letter of Philippians and really throughout this year is enjoying Jesus is absolutely vital for the Christian life. There is no way you're going to follow Jesus well and faithfully over the long haul apart from your soul more and more and more finding its joy and enjoyment in Jesus. It's absolutely crucial for the Christian life. And so you can think about contentment and covetousness on on. They have, a, they have a, an inverse relationship. So if they're on a teeter-totter, it looks like this. If coveting increases, contentment decreases. So, so if, you're, if you're desiring something other than God, so much that you lose your contentment in God, obviously when you're doing that, your contentment in, in Jesus, your, your heart being satisfied in Jesus decreases. But when your joy, when your inner life is tethered to a joy in Jesus, your contentment is rising, covetousness has a way of falling. This is the relationship between the two. And now let me clarify one thing, because I don't want you to take this to the places that, that it shouldn't go. When you think of contentment, it, it is saying it's a heart that's fully satisfied in God, but that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy God's good gifts, like marriage or singleness or kids or hobbies or fill in the blank. We should enjoy God, God's gracious gifts to us. But contentment means that the core of our joy like the core of our joy is not tethered to those things. The core of our joy is tethered to Jesus. 
That, that's what contentment is getting at. So it's a heart that's fully satisfied in God, and this is the hard part, regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of the circumstances. And you see this, you see this in verses 11 and 12. Paul says, whatever situation it is, I've learned to be content. Like whatever it means, whatever I find myself in, whatever the circumstances are, I can still be content in God. And then he goes on in verse 12. I can be brought low or abounding. I can be well-fed or hungry. I can be in poverty or I can be provided for. But in all of those situations, I can still be content because my contentment is not based on circumstances. It's not based on what I have in my life or what I do not have in my life. I love what the old Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He said, it is supposed by most people that they could be content if they were not exactly what they are or where they are. We could be content if, if we could just change this about who we are, if we could just change this about what we are, or if we could just change the, the where we are in life, the, the what we have, then we could be content. But that's not the sort of contentment that Paul's talking about, right? He's saying in whatever situation, I can be content. Now, I think this actually provides a, a good, just helpful grid to think about where the roots of your discontentment lie. And by the way, we all have them. If you, if you don't, you're, you're probably not human and you're probably not being honest. We, we all have roots of discontentment in us. And I think it's gonna be a helpful grid to help identify those. Think about your life right now. And where is it that you're saying, if I just had that, then I would be content. Like right now in your life, what do you need to be content? If you're married, if, if my spouse would just kind of straighten up, if my kids would just kind of be that, if, I, if my job would just kind of be that, if this circumstance would change, if I could just have, have that. Now, whatever you're identifying circumstantially in your life, that is introducing you to your idols. That's introducing you to your functional saviors. Like what you're really looking to in your life to rescue you, that, that's what that question is helping, helping you see. It, it's pointing you to, to what, what Jesus should be, but what you're substituting something else in there for. It's pointing out your functional saviors. Paul's contentment is a regardless sort of a, cont a, a contentment. It can, it can happen, it can, it can be full, his heart can be fully satisfied in God regardless of what his life externally looks like. Um, years ago, I was playing with Hannah and Caleb in our backyard and uh, we started and the weather was nice and then a storm was coming in and all heck broke loose in our backyard. Like the, the wind just came ripping through the backyard, rain, hell, it just went crazy in our backyard. So as soon as it starts going crazy, we grab all the stuff we're playing with, we head into the back door and it was this amazing thing. It goes from, from just out of control in the backyard to we shut the door to the, to the back of our house and inside the house, it was perfectly calm. Now that is a, a picture of a contented heart. Paul is saying that like the, the outside of your life can be absolutely crazy, but, but your satisfaction in God can seal your heart off where you have this perfectly calm inner peace and inner life, even though the outside, the, the external issues in your life are out of control. That's the sort of contentment that Paul is talking about. Now, another, I think just like clarification is, is needed here. When we're talking about contentment, I wanna be clear, this is not what I'm saying. 
Contentment isn't a denial of difficult circumstances. The Bible calls suffering, suffering, pain, pain, across, across. It calls those things, those things. So it's not a denial of, of, of difficulty. It, it do, contentment doesn't mean that, that we never voice our humble complaints to God and ask God to change things about our lives and our circumstances. There's plenty of room. There's an invitation in the Bible to do that sort of a thing. Uh, contentment doesn't mean that, that, that we don't use lawful sort of means to change circumstances in our life, to change things that are not fit for human flourishing. We should be about those things. So, so contentment is not meaning th those sorts of things. What it is meaning is that in the midst of the craziest of circumstances, if our circumstances never change, our heart really can still be satisfied in God. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to push the panic button. A panic button. We can be content even in the midst of the craziest of circumstances. This is the what of contentment, what it is, a heart fully satisfied in God, regardless of the circumstances. Now for the second part, what is contentment? Or, or I'm sorry, why is contentment desirable? So what is contentment? And then part two, why is contentment desirable? Like, why is it a good thing for us to pursue contentment in our life? And let me give you a couple of reasons. Um, one reason is it's commanded in the scriptures. So in, in our passage this morning in Philippians 4, Paul commends contentment but doesn't command it. But in other places in the Bible, that's not the case. I'm gonna give you one, the author of Hebrews. He says it this way in Hebrews 13, verse 15. It's not gonna be commended here alone. It's also gonna be commanded in this passage. In Hebrews 13, uh, verse five, the author of Hebrews says this, keep your life free from the love of money. And by the way, if you don't have a strategy to do that, chances are you're not going to do that. Keep your life free from the love of money. Like you're gonna to have to labor to do that. That's why he commands it. Like you're gonna to have to be vigilant to do that. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's a command, be content with what you have. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So God is commanding contentment. Now, I think that just in some ways introduces a helpful question to consider. Why is it that covetousness or a lack of contentment, why is that so offensive to God? Why is it so offensive that God would say, don't do that, but be content, keep your heart fully satisfied in me. But why would God do that? Why would God find covetousness so offensive? And at the core, I think the reason is because coveting is really spiritual adultery. That's what coveting is. It's looking at God and saying, it's looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, listen, I really think you're a great groom. I think you're a great guy. I like so much about you. And I'm gonna be back tomorrow. But for today, I'm gonna go chase after some other lovers. That's what discontentment is. It's saying, I think you're great, Jesus, but today I'm going to go ahead and shelve you and I'm gonna run after some other loves and see if I can get some satisfaction out of some other loves today. It's, it's spiritual adultery. And just like all adultery, that is offensive to the one that you're offending in it, right? That, that hurts the heart of the one that you're offending. This is why in the Old Testament, you see God respond so violently to, to this particular sin of coveting. This is why he's doing that. And by the way, that often manifests itself in grumbling and complaining throughout the, the Old Testament. So I think this is a good time just to slow down and ask ourselves the question, where do we see a lack of contentment in our life? Like when you think about your life, where do you see 
yourself in the hamster wheel of like, if I can just get that, if I can just have that, if this, if this could change, then I could be happy. If this, if this could change, then I would be okay. But where do you see that lack of contentment in your life? Contentment is commanded. Here's the second reason why contentment is desirable is because it's, it's commanded also for your good. Now just, I think it's always helpful to see the commands of God with your good. These two things always go together. Anytime God is commanding you to do something, it's because God is a good dad looking at you saying, I know better than you know for your life. I know what, it, I know what human flourishing, the context that it needs. And these are the commands. This is the path for human flourishing. Like if you wanna flourish as a human being, here are the things to be about. Here are the things not to be about. And he's saying, if you wanna flourish, contentment is necessary for that. You see this in 1 Timothy 6. This is verses six to that. I'm just gonna read through this passage with you in 1 Timothy 6. It should be up on the screen for you. Paul, again, says it this way. Now there is great gain, gr great gain, not just a little bit of gain, but great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. So, so there's a gain for you, not a small gain, but a great gain. Like when you keep your soul satisfied in God, when, when you keep your soul believing, when you keep yourself before the Lord believing that, that Jesus plus nothing really does equal everything. When you keep your soul believing that fully satisfied in God, Paul is saying, there's great gain in that. And who doesn't want that great gain? Who doesn't enjoy contentment in their life? Everybody does. Right? Everybody loves contentment. I mean, when you're content, this, this, is what, this is what you receive. This is the gift you receive from the Lord when you're content. What, what's happening on the inside of you stops being dependent upon what's happening to the outside of you. That's, that's the gift. That's one of the great gifts of contentment. You stop being tossed to and fro by all the external things. What's on the inside of you stops being dependent upon what's on the outside of you. When your heart's fully satisfied in God, you don't need the, the new thing, the bigger thing, the better thing. And by the way, it's not always wrong to have those things. It's, it's not always wrong. But, but your relationship with those things changes. You, you no longer are living in such a way where you need those things to be okay. And if we're honest with most of the new things and the bigger things and the better things that we have a way of acquiring, it's because we're looking to those things to satisfy these deep sort of longings in our soul. And Paul's saying, you, you don't have to have those things. There's great gain in godliness with contentment. Great, great gain. Great gain is found not in acquiring more stuff, but in enjoying more of God. That, that's where great gain is found. Then he goes on in verse eight. But if you have food and clothing with these, with these food and clothing, we will be content. With, with these food and clothing. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is found in Philippians 4. It's verse 19. And Paul there is reminding them of why they can be content. And, and he tells them, here's the promise. And my God will supply every need of yours, every need of yours, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now that's a promise made by God to all of his sons and daughters. Now the problem we have when we read that verse, Philippians 4.19, is that word need. That that word need in the 21st century has been stretched to mean so much. It's not just, I need a car. It's, I need that car. It's not just, I need shelter. It's, I need that house. It's not just, I need food. It's, I need that food. 
Need has just been stretched to mean so much. We have such an inflated view of need. I was listening several years ago to a person describe what it requires to become a sumo wrestler. It's more than you think. I mean, these guys have like a regimen for how to, how to stretch out their stomach so they can consume more calories, therefore gain more weight, therefore consume more calories, therefore gain more weight so they can actually become a sumo wrestler. And I think in a, in a lot of ways, what we have done is, is we have stretched out our appetites so we have like sumo appetites. So, so our idea of need now just stretches so far beyond food and clothing and the basic necessities to it means all of these things. Uh, J.K. Chesterton, I love when he was talking about this. He said, there are two ways to get enough. That there's two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. That's kind of what our culture has bought into. Just acquiring more. That's how you get enough. You just keep buying. You keep, you keep doing it. Having equals happiness. There's two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. And I just wonder how many of us need to ask Jesus to help us desire less. Just like, just to stop thinking that having equals happiness, to just free us from the chains of that way of seeing the world. Just wonder, I, I need that. I mean, God needs to help me see the world in a different way. To just desire less of, of the things of this world. That's why we need contentment. It's commanded, it's commanded for your good. Godliness with contentment, there's great gain in that. And then comes the last question, how do we get it? How, how do we get it? How, how do we get more of contentment? Now, th there's two different ways to think about the answer to that question. And you can't get to the second way without seeing the first way. So let's just make sure we're seeing this clearly. Discontentment in a lot of ways is the default human setting. Like when you're born, you're born with a really discontented heart. It, you, we're all born with a heart that's searching for satisfaction and happiness. And we're searching for it in every other place but God. That's the way you're born. It's the way I'm born. This is the default condition of, of human beings. So that alerts us to the reality that, that contentment is only possible when God makes us a new creation. Apart from God making us a new creation, contentment is an impossibility. We need God to come in and to give us new taste buds in our heart. For God to give us a new heart with new desires, for new hopes, for new dreams, for a new appetite in him. So, so the first thing we need is for God to make us a new creation. So we, we can't get to contentment apart from going straight through the person of Jesus and him making us a new creation. So if we're ever going to war against covetousness and war for contentment, we need new hearts, not just a new plan. But on the other hand, if we have a new heart, we definitely need some plans. So a plan will not get you there. You need a new heart to get there. But if you've got a new heart, we've got to get some plans going of growing and pursuing contentment in our life. And Paul, he's alluding this in, in, verses, uh, in verse 11. And he says something like this twice in chapter four. In verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned. He's learned this. Like he's pursued it. He's been taught. He's gone to the school of contentment and he's learned some lessons. 
He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I, contentment is something that by God's grace, when God gives us a new heart, God puts us in the school of contentment and we begin to learn some things that then fosters contentment in us. And, and I wanna finish just by giving you the two lessons we all have to learn if we're gonna pursue contentment. For contentment to be a reality, here are two lessons we all have to learn. Lesson number one, we have to go to the school of contentment and learn this lesson. What can't satisfy our soul? We have to know that. We have to see this. What, what cannot satisfy our soul? And, and I'm just praying that the Spirit of God would maybe just give us a fresh hearing of this today. Because it, it just might be the thing that rescues some of us from just that treadmill of discontentment and coveting. What can't satisfy our soul? Answer. None of God's gifts can satisfy the cravings of your heart. N none of God's gifts. And God gives us a lot of wonderful gifts, but none of those gifts can satisfy the cravings of our heart. Now, rather than just saying that, I wanna to try to illustrate that this morning. And I wanna do that in one of the most vivid pictures in the Bible of a person pursuing satisfaction in everything but God. And I want us to learn from him this morning. It's a, it's a vivid illustration. One of my favorite illustrations is this in the Bible. And, and the Bible is inviting you. To, would you come on in and rather than having to like learn everything yourself the hard way, can you just look at this man trying these things and can you learn from him? Could, could you be humble enough to do that? And we find this lesson, this illustration in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is right after the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. It's written by Solomon. And the Bible calls Solomon the wisest and the richest man that there was. So he's got some wisdom on how to go about trying to find um, some satisfaction. And he's got some wealth to get about pursuing it. He's the wisest and the richest. And here's what he does in, chapter one in chapters one and two of Ecclesiastes. He sets about the, the work of creating an experiment. He's looking at the world and all of God's gifts and he's asking this question. Which of these gifts is going to be the thing that satisfies my soul? Which of these gifts are going to quench the craving that I have deep down in me for happiness and joy? What out there is going to do it? Now, before we go on, I think it's just helpful to know we're all doing that. You're in that experiment. I'm in that experiment. There's not a human being that has ever lived outside of the Garden of Eden that is not doing this experiment. God has, God has created us with an insatiable desire for joy and happiness. And we're all, every one of us, we're looking around and we're looking at our options, we're looking at God's gifts and we're asking the question, what's gonna be the thing that does this? What's gonna be the thing that fully satisfies my soul? We're all doing exactly what Solomon does here. And so we can learn something from our man Solomon here. And this is what we find happening in the book of Ecclesiastes. He sets about four different tests, four different things that he's using to, to just test. Will, will this satisfy me? Will that satisfy me? And the first one is pleasure. And you see it in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse one. Solomon said this, I said in my heart, he's just, he's doing the test. He, he's talking to himself and he's saying, this is gonna be the first thing. I'm gonna test my heart in this. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So Solomon's gonna test this. Is this gonna be the thing that quenches the thirst of my heart? So Solomon begins, and listen, it's with unlimited wealth. 
He's not skimping on this. It's with unlimited wealth. He starts to throw these, these parties that are just of epic proportions. First Kings chapter four gives us an idea of, of the food required for one of his parties. And the food required would have fed somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. That's not a backyard barbecue, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's like invite Dallas over and let's do this thing. That, that's the kind of partying that Solomon is doing. I mean, it is with unlimited wealth, he is saying, how can I not just like do the party thing and the pleasure thing, but how can I do the party thing and pleasure thing? And then he gets to all of that and he, and he comes to this conclusion. It's vanity. It, it's not working. It just, it's not quenching the thirst of my soul. It, it can't do it. it. It's not doing it. So then he goes for test number two. He, he leaves the pleasure route and then he goes to the possessions route, the, the, the money and possessions thing. So you see this in Ecclesiastes 2, verses four through six. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he's done the party scene and, and then he decides it's time to settle down and to do something with his life. He starts to build, he starts to get a job, he starts to like get about his life and he starts to, to acquire things. And not just a few things, I mean, th this guy is acquiring huge things. So um, think about his house. It, it, about the same time period, Solomon set about the work of building a temple for God. That temple took him seven years to build. Can you imagine seven years to build something? Took him seven years to build. At that time, it would have been one of the wonders of the world. Like, like he, he put some time and energy and money into it. Do you know how, uh, how long it took him to build his house? 14 years. I mean, this guy went after it. I don't know what kind of dream you have of your white picket fence out there, that, that house, your dream house. I can just guarantee you it's not comparing to Solomon's house. His house is better than whatever thing you dream of. So he, he built that house and then he went on to plant vineyards and gardens and parks. Um, one illustration says um, a forest, a, fo he, a forest. Okay, I planted a garden this year. Solomon planted a forest. <laughs> who does that? Who, who plants a forest for crying out loud? You, you can still go to Israel and see the ponds that he built to irrigate the forest that he planted. So, so He's acquiring, he's building, he, he's, he's got things now in his life. And, and what's his conclusion? Vanity. That the house didn't satisfy him, the forest didn't satisfy him, the gardens didn't satisfy him. It, it's vanity. He's saying, it just didn't quench the thirst of my soul. It, it couldn't do it. And, and then he goes from pleasure to possessions. Then he goes on to ease and comfort. This is Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse seven. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. Okay, now think about what, he, what he's done. He's went the pleasure route. He's gone the build stuff route, the possessions route. And now he's finished with all the hard work and he decides, you know what I need now? I'm gonna try the lazy boy. And I'm not gonna lift a single finger. I, I'm gonna get people to literally wait on me hand and foot. Like I'm gonna wake up and breakfast is gonna be cooked and they're gonna do the laundry and they're gonna have lunch ready. And then they're gonna have whatever's in the afternoon ready. I, I'm not gonna do a single thing that I don't wanna do in my life. Do you know what a lot of us dream about? A life where we don't do a single thing other than what we wanna do in our life. We fantasize about that. 
Solomon actually had the wherewithal to, to actually do that. He didn't have to do a single thing that he didn't want to do. If he wanted to sit in his Spider-Man pajamas on the back porch drink coffee all day, he could do that every day if he wanted to. What, whatever he wanted to do, he could do it. If he didn't want to do it, he didn't have to do it. He went the ease and the comfort route. And you know what his conclusion was? The thing that we dream about so often, it's vanity. It just doesn't work to satisfy the deep cravings of his heart. And then he, he tries one more thing. Test number four, sexuality. This is Ecclesiastes 2, verse 8. He bought many concubines. This guy had 700 concubines. 700. I don't even know what that 700. Now, let, let me just... Let me say in, a, in as non-graphic of a way of what that meant for this man. Solomon had uninhibited sexual pleasure. His only limitation was his imagination. And you know what his conclusion was to all of that? Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In other words, he's saying, I've, I've spent my life testing all of these things with resources that you'll never have to test them. So why don't you learn from me? It's all vanity. It doesn't work. I, the next thing, the bigger thing, the better thing, it's not going to quench the thirst in your soul. Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote a book called, uh, he's a Puritan, he wrote a book called uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And, and uh, Unfortunately, it's still a really rare jewel. You just don't meet many people who are content in life. But, but listen to what he says. He says, my brothers, the, the reason why you have not gotten contentment in the things of this world is not because you have not gotten enough of them, but because, there are, because they are not things proportional to the immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Many men think that when they are troubled and have no contentment, it is because they have but a little in the world. And if they had more, then they would be content. I, can we just listen to Solomon and know that's not true, right? This is just as if, and listen to his illustration. This is just as if a man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind and then should think that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he has not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. And this is what so many of us are doing right now. Just like Solomon, we're holding our mouth open to the wind, demanding that the wind satisfy our cravings in our heart. And Solomon is just, he's testifying to us today. It doesn't work. You're not gonna have enough things or a, a, a good enough thing or the, the new, it's never going to work. Jeremiah Burroughs is saying, it's just not proportional to your soul. It's not the thing that can satisfy your soul. So we have to learn what can't satisfy us. And lastly, we have to learn what can satisfy our soul. That's the second lesson. We have to learn, we have to go to the school of contentment and learn this can't do it, but this can do it. And here is what can do it. Jesus alone is capable of satisfying the cravings of your heart. It's Jesus alone. That, that's it. 
You can spend your life just like Solomon, testing a million things. Jesus alone can satisfy your soul. Uh, Jeff Gordon, uh, once upon a time, gave a great bit of racing wisdom. Here was his racing wisdom. He's a NASCAR driver, by the way, for those of you who don't know him. Here was his racing wisdom. In racing, either you focus in racing or you hit something really hard. I agree. Either you focus in racing or you hit something really hard. That's, that's good, simple racing wisdom. And I think in a lot of ways, it corresponds to some really good life wisdom. This is what Paul is trying to convince us of in this passage. In life, either you focus on Jesus or you hit something really hard. Either you focus on Jesus as the one who can satisfy your soul or you crash and burn. Either you focus on Jesus as the one who can satisfy the deep, deep cravings in your heart or you flame out in a million different ways on a million different sins. And this is what Paul is getting at here in, in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Welcome to the most misquoted verse in the Bible. How many times have you seen an athlete tuck that verse right in their pocket as they go out onto the field as if God is saying, you can win this game through me who strengthens you. Ironically, the verse is saying the exact opposite. You can win or lose this game and you can still have a heart that's satisfied in God. That's what it's saying. So, so the all things in Philippians 4.13 is referring to contentment. That, that's the all things. You can be content in everything, in all things. That, that's referring to contentment. And you can be content in all things through him, through, through Jesus, the one who died for you, the one who lived for you, the one who rose from the dead on your behalf. You can do all things through him who strengthens you. That's telling us what Jesus does through the power of the spirit in the life of his sons and daughters, his brothers and sisters. He strengthens us. Now, how does Jesus strengthen us? Jesus strengthens us by satisfying us. That's how he strengthens you. By keeping your heart satisfied in him. God strengthens us by satisfying us. Your strength in Jesus is determined by your satisfaction in Jesus. If you don't know how strong you are, how steady you are, how stable you are in your walk with Jesus, ask yourself this question. How satisfied is my heart in Jesus? How, how much am I enjoying Jesus? Your strength in Jesus is determined by your satisfaction in Jesus. And this is not pie in the sky, theoretical stuff for Paul. This is life for Paul. Philippians 3.8, indeed, I count everything as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I mean, do you see what Paul's saying? Paul is saying, I've lost everything. But because, but because Jesus so outshines everything else in my life, now everything else feels unnecessary to my life. Like if I have Jesus, I can go with everything else or I can go without everything else, but I'm gonna be just fine. For Paul, Jesus plus nothing really equaled everything. 
And this really takes us to the point of this text and the question I'm gonna leave you with this morning. Paul is saying to us, Jesus really is enough. He's enough. And I wanna ask you that question this morning. Is Jesus enough for you today? Is Jesus enough for you today? When we answer no to that, that's what discontent is. That's what coveting is. But contentment is looking at our all-satisfying Savior, the bread of life, and saying, yes, Jesus, you, you are enough. Would you pray with me there where you are? And I want to just invite you to take that question before the Lord. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? And let me remind you that the the door through which we have to enter to get to contentment, the only door is, is Jesus. You can't get to contentment apart from going straight through Christ. So, so this morning for some of us, our first step is not even to think about contentment yet. It is to think about surrendering. It's to think about turning from our sin and throwing ourselves upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's about coming to God with the empty hands of faith and saying, I trust in the perfect life of Jesus, his death for me, his resurrection from the dead. God, save me, rescue me. And when we come like that with the empty hands of faith, God the Father looks down and says, I'll make that trade. I'll take all of your sin and put it on my perfect son, Jesus, and I'll take his perfect record of righteousness and credit it to your account. I'll adopt you into my family. I'll make you one of my own. I'll rescue you. And if that's you, you can just be communicating that right now in your heart to God. And for the rest of us in the room, is Jesus enough? If not, this is your chance to, to open up your life and heart to God, to bring that to God, to ask God for help, to repent of the sin of coveting, of discontentment, and to ask God to change your heart, to ask God to help you today. And he stands so ready, so willing to give you the help that you need. So, oh God, would you meet us now? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.